Good morning and welcome to our Sunday morning service. It's good to have you with us once again, whether you're new to this, um, to, to these services or whether you're a regular member of our church, it's great to have you with us to worship the living God this morning. My name's Tom and I'm the Associate Minister here, here at Billericay Baptist Church and, uh, and it's a real pleasure to know that so many people are tuning in to these services, whether it's Sunday morning or whether it's a, a more convenient time for you um, and taking part and engaging with our worship today together. So welcome, it's good to be here and I'm sure that just like me you two are celebrating the the news that we've heard this week that we've got another three weeks of time to spend with our families and uh, and to really make the most of. I think we better start in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and thank you, Lord, for your, your presence with us throughout these times. Lord, we, we know that there are so many people who are suffering, so many people who are in poor health at the moment with the coronavirus. There are so many people who are mourning the loss of loved ones. And so, Father, we, we come here this morning with hearts full of gratitude that we, we still have our loved ones and we still have our friends and we still have our God. Father, we, we cling to you at this time and we give thanks, Lord, that you are sure and steadfast. You are the rock of all ages and that we can turn to you and we can find that you haven't changed, that you are not fearful, that you are not vulnerable, but instead you are there for us. So, Father, as we read your word this morning, as we as we delve more into um, into what it means to be a Christian, as we consider our response to the Easter message, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will fill our homes, will fill the rooms in which we're sitting, will fill our very hearts so that we may know that we we don't just worship an idea. We don't just worship an empty notion, but we worship a God who is very much alive and very much powerful and very much in control of these situations and of these times. So Father, bless us now as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning once again. And um, I really hope that you've had a good Easter week. I hope that you've enjoyed um, having some time with families. I was going to say some time off work, but I know that some people are still working really hard at the moment. And um, in fact, for many people, they're working longer hours than they would do normally. Um, I know that some people are battling with the challenges of working from home, um, myself included. And I know that some people actually, uh, they've had a break from work this week, but they wouldn't have chosen a break from work this week. They would rather have the security of knowing that that they are working, that they do have an income and that um, they were living in a normal situation. A lot of people have said to me this week that because of the whole coronavirus situation, um, they've struggled to get into the Easter spirit. They've struggled to have that feeling of, of joy and celebration that they would normally have when, um, when they've just celebrated Easter Sunday. I can identify with that. There's been no holidays. We can't go away together. I know that some people had holidays planned. Again, we were supposed to be in the Peak Districts at the moment, enjoying a, a bit of time off, but that was cancelled. Um, I know that we haven't been able to see friends and family, and so for many of us, that would that would have been an important part of Easter Sunday. Um, for many of us, there's been a lot less Easter eggs and Easter chocolate laying around the house, which, to be honest, is probably not a bad thing. But all the same, um, it's been a, a noticeable difference. 
And all of these things add up and lead to us feeling perhaps a little bit flat at this Easter time, perhaps feeling a little bit like um, there's something missing. But then Easter is an anniversary. It's an anniversary of the death of Jesus. It's an anniversary where we look back at the, the death of Jesus on the cross and then we look back at the, um, the very anxious period between Good Friday and Easter Sunday and then we look back at the resurrection and we celebrate what that was all about. I don't know about you and I may get in trouble with my dear wife for saying this but anniversaries often feel a little bit flat. You see, an anniversary, by its very nature, is, is a recollection of a happy day. And if you take a wedding, for example, on a wedding day, it's a day full of, uh, of charm and of magic, of two people who, who have, have, life has brought them together and they've, they've chosen to, to commit to one another for the rest of their lives. This is a, a day of excitement, a day of anticipation, a day when all pressures and worries and fears get put to one side and instead it's, it's just a, a day of dreams and aspirations. But of course, the days go by, the weeks go by, the honeymoon gets enjoyed and then is over. And within a few months of that wedding taking place, the husband and wife find themselves at home and there are bills to pay, there are jobs to do, there are household chores, the bins have to go out early in the morning, um, maybe the dog has to be walked, maybe there's talk of children. All of these things begin to take away the magic a bit. When you get to your first anniversary or second or third or fifth or tenth, you might look back at your wedding video and, uh, or, or photographs and they're tinged with sadness because there are some people in those photographs who are no longer with you. Or maybe there's some couples who are no longer together. And you know that what you're looking at is a moment in time that lasted for a very short while. Very quickly, the memory, the anniversary of a wedding is tainted as the flag of reality is hoisted over the castle of dreams. I imagine that was not dissimilar to how the disciples were feeling shortly after the resurrection. We heard last week of how the tomb was discovered the ladies who went to dress the body of Christ turned up and found the stone rolled away, the grave clothes neatly folded. They ran back to Jerusalem and told the disciples and two went running to the tomb. They, they corroborated what the, what the ladies had said. They found it to be true. There was a meeting with, with this angelic figure, this angelic Christ-like figure that the, the Gospels all talk about. And then, and then Jesus appeared to his disciples in a room in Jerusalem. He, he appeared to them, the doors were locked and he just appeared in their midst. Thomas was a disciple who wasn't with them and when he heard what had happened, he said, I, I cannot believe that this has happened. I saw him die on the cross and I know that people do not come back from the dead. And then Jesus appeared 
and Thomas was invited to touch the scars and the wounds. And so he believed. Jesus disappeared. And the disciples are left wondering, what do we do? What do we do with this? Jesus is, is back. Wow. Um, how do we respond to this? And so they sort of have this initial moment of ecstasy. This initial moment where they think, he's risen. Hallelujah. Yes, he's back. He's done it. What do we do? What do we do with this news? It's a bit like if, if someone suddenly gave you a million pound note. Now, I know that such a thing doesn't exist. But just imagine if someone said, here's a million pound note. You'd take it, you'd look at it and you'd say, wow, this is amazing. This is incredible. I, I, could, I could buy whatever I like. This is fantastic. What a gift. What a privilege. What do I do with it? I can't take it up to Starbucks. I can't go and get a Subway meal deal. They won't have change. I can't go to the Blue Boar. Even if I buy five rounds of drinks, they're not going to be able to change this. What, what do I do with this? It's only going to be useful when I break it down into little bits. And even then, I've got to use it wisely. I need to think about this. So the disciples have this, this moment of ecstasy when they're celebrating and then this moment of reflection where suddenly it dawns on them that they need to be careful because word will get out that Jesus is alive. Herod would be furious. Pilate would also be furious. Caiaphas, the high priest, would want to know what was going on. You see, all of these three people were absolutely convinced that Jesus had been crucified. Herod was pleased because the threat to his throne had been removed. Pilate was pleased because the political unrest that was talked about had been dispelled. Caiaphas was pleased because the man who was having the audacity to blaspheme to such an extent he was claiming to be the son of God had rightly, by law, been killed. These were three very powerful men. For him, for Jesus, to return would ask some serious questions and they would all want to make sure that they crushed these rumours as quickly as possible. And so you can imagine the disciples sitting there fearing for their personal safety. What if they send soldiers? What if they know where we are? What if there are spies in Jerusalem? What are we going to do? And then, of course, we know that many of them had, had given up their jobs, their, their livelihoods, their ways of life. They'd left their homes and their families to follow Jesus. They couldn't go back. And so... There would have been the very natural fear, where am I going to get an income? How am I going to establish a business and make money? How am I going to look after myself, feed my, 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 my wife, my children, my family? Where am I going to live? Am I going to stay here in Jerusalem? Am I going to go back to where I, where I came from and, and face whatever music awaits me? And what if Jesus has a new assignment for me? 
What if Jesus actually calls us to continue following him? What am I going to do then? I'm going to follow this indestructible Messiah, but that's going to bring some risk with it. And so the disciples are sitting there. We read in John 21. That Simon and Thomas and Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples are sitting there together. They're sitting by the on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I go to the beach, whether it's a great lake or whether it's a, an actual sea, I find it quite awe-inspiring. I quite enjoy sitting in silence, just, <clears throat> just letting the waves, the, the noise of the waves and the, the sheer vastness of the body of water just take my thoughts and I find myself drifting away. I find it quite therapeutic. No doubt the disciples had moments where they were sitting on that shoreline that morning in silence, each lost in their own thoughts, their own wonder. Until eventually, Simon Peter stands up and says, right, I'm going fishing. They all look at him and say, I'll come with you. And so they find a boat and the boat is equipped with nets and they cast out into the water and they go fishing. I think that's a great idea. You see, I'm no great fisherman. In fact, I'm a rubbish fisherman. But I enjoy fishing, not because I catch many fish. I really don't. But what I find is that when I take myself away to a beach or onto a lake or a riverbank and cast out a line, I'm focusing on fishing. But actually, a lot of the time, fishing is is a, a battle of hope over experience. I know that I've had many fishing trips where I don't come home with any fish, but I always believe that at any second, a whopper is gonna take my line and I'm gonna reel it in. And no longer am I gonna have to come home with fabricated tales of the one that got away, but instead I'm gonna come home and say, there you go, look at that. And I'm gonna have in, in, in a box in front of me this whacking great fish that we can cook and eat and enjoy. Experience tells me that it ain't gonna happen. But I spend all day staring at the water, hoping, hoping, hoping. The disciples get into the boat and they go out onto the water and they stare into the water once the nets are cast, hoping hoping for a catch of fish, just hoping for anything to distract them, to, to just give them a few minutes of peace in their mind so that they can focus on something pure and simple like trying to outsmart a fish rather than trying to battle through the th theological quagmire that they were in the middle of. But of course, just like me, they catch nothing. They're fishing all night. They catch nothing. And so eventually, they decide to call it a day. Well, you would, wouldn't you? Fishing's great fun, but only for a, a certain amount of time when you're not catching anything. And so we're told that early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. 
He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? That is the most annoying thing anyone can say. Honestly, when you've been sitting there all day or all night and you've caught nothing, the last thing you want is for some smart addict to shout out, you caught anything? What's it to you? Ain't you got somewhere better to be? The disciples don't give much of an answer to Jesus. You can imagine them muttering to each other, oh no, we've got one of them. Look at him on the shore. No! One word answer, short and snappy. These are people that have been fishing unsuccessfully all night. One word, no! We haven't caught anything. Who does he think he is? And then, wow, how annoying would this be? The stranger in the boat seems to mock them. The stranger on the shore seems to mock them. The sarcasm. (laughs) Why don't you pull your net in and put it the other side? Might be fish the other side. My goodness, how they didn't dive into the water and go and throttle him, I'll never know. But they don't. Instead, they do it. They pull in the nets and they cast them on the other side and sure enough there is a a huge catch of fish. 153. John actually records the exact number of fish to show us how many there were. There were so many that they were scared that the net was going to tear, but it didn't. Jesus is suddenly revealed to them. They suddenly recognise who he is. And while they're pulling in this catch of fish... um, Uh, Peter dives into the water to try and get to Jesus as quickly as he can. The other disciples row the boat towards the shore and eventually Jesus has lit a bonfire and they they have cooked fish for breakfast. I love that moment. But you see, this Easter time, this Easter time, We've read the stories, we've read the scriptures, we've heard about what happened at Easter, we've heard the the, the miracle of the resurrection, and yet people are still saying, I've been feeling a bit flat this Easter. I've been feeling a bit empty. It hasn't felt like Easter. Because when when you take away all the trappings of an anniversary, I struggle to celebrate what we're remembering from all that time ago. I look around and I see that some of the happiness has been taken away. Some of the happiness has been lost and tainted. So if you're feeling like that this morning, maybe, you're, maybe the hope, your hope in Jesus is being a little bit clouded by doubt. Maybe you, you look around at the moment and you think, there's now been uh, nearly 15,000 deaths on the day that I'm recording this sermon because of coronavirus. And, and maybe you're thinking, where's God in that? Maybe you have friends and family who are lonely and suffering and struggling with this isolation. And you're thinking, where's God in that? Maybe you've got employment worries, maybe relationship worries. And you're struggling because your hope is being clouded by doubt. Maybe a a nagging distraction is inhibiting you somehow. Every time that you you wanna listen to a sermon or, or worship or read scripture, there's a distraction there's a phone call or a knock on the door or or netflix or amazon prime is just calling you because you want to watch that next episode of whatever box set you're in the middle of and so you're being distracted somehow or maybe last week you heard the easter message and the good news of the resurrection for the first time and you thought amen hallelujah 
I am absolutely taken by this. I am, I'm excited. Jesus has, has, has reached into my heart and stirred me up. I want to do something. I want to respond, but I'm not quite sure how. I can't go out and tell people. I can't go to my local church and ask questions. I, I don't know what to read. I've got this frustration. I've got this thing stopping me. So whether it's doubt, whether it's a distraction, whether it's some sort of inhibition, I just want you to know this morning that you're in very good company feeling like that. You're in very good company indeed. You see, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a vast chunk of the New Testament, says these words in 2 Corinthians. He's just been writing a letter to the church in Corinth in in Greece and um, he's been talking about all of the amazing things that God's done for him. He's been talking about the visions that he's seen, about the experiences with Jesus that he's had. His very first experience on a Damascus road when, when Paul was going to Damascus to persecute Christians. And he had this blinding light and he saw Jesus and he heard the voice of God saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he was blinded for three days and then, and then the scales were taken from his eyes and he knew he had to get baptised and then the rest of his life not to persecuting Christians but instead to to spreading the word that Jesus was the son of God. That was his conversion experience and he's just been been almost boasting about these things and about how God has used him to spread the good news about Jesus. And then he shares something with us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 starting at verse 7 He says this, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So if we've been feeling a bit flat and a bit empty recently. If we've been feeling that we've suddenly began to allow doubt to creep in whenever we've been trying to get in touch with God, whenever we've had a nagging distraction or some sort of inhibition, whenever we've tried to discipline ourselves to spend time reading scriptures or praying or meditating, whenever we've been just desperately wanting to to feel the presence of God but we just haven't found it, well, it's okay because we all go through those times. We all find that we have some sort of a thorn in our flesh. Now, Paul uses this phrase and no one's quite sure what he meant. Um, Some people say that he was battling with spiritual temptation, doubt, questioning, which is a pretty big claim for someone who had had the type of spiritual visions that that Paul had had. 
Some say that he was struggling with carnal temptations. Paul was a single man. Others say that he was getting fed up with the constant opposition and, and, and persecution that he experienced as he travelled round trying to preach the good news of Jesus to people that had never heard it before. Some say he had some sort of a, a physical deformity. Others say he suffered from epilepsy. Some say he had severe migraines. We know that he had very, very poor eyesight and some people say that his thorn in the flesh was, was chronic eye trouble. Others suggest from, from, um, from descriptions that we have of him that he had some sort of a hunchback. Others say that he would have suffered with recurring bouts of a malarial type disease that was very common over the East Mediterranean coast at that time. You see, we don't know, is the bottom line, what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. And actually it's probably more useful that he doesn't tell us. What he does tell us is that he was given this thorn in the flesh to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. In other words, he says, to stop me becoming an arrogant fool, to stop me bragging and boasting and trying to um, lift myself above other people, God has cut me down a peg or two. God has given me this constant reminder to stay humble. This constant reminder that actually I rely on him. I cannot do anything out of my own strength. That I am utterly reliant on his goodness and his grace to enable me to do what I do. He actually describes it as a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. This is Paul. This is Paul the Apostle. This is one of the most significant figures in the New Testament other than Jesus. And he describes himself as having a messenger from Satan. Paul is, is not in a good place here. He's struggling. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, and listen to this. If you've got a red letter Bible, one of these Bibles that, that writes in red the words of Jesus, this will be in red. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So don't worry. If you're struggling this week, if you're feeling a bit flat, a bit empty, a bit low... God's grace is sufficient for you. It is. And in your weakness, in your moments of, of struggle, in your moments where you feel like you're, you're failing and you're empty, that you're struggling, God is as powerful as ever. So you've got nothing to fear. Paul says himself, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So Paul stops boasting about all the, the marvellous spiritual revelations and visions that he's had, all these amazing experiences with God. And instead, he says, I, I, actually, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses, about my failings, because they're the times, they're the moments when Christ works more powerfully in me. And then... Look at the list that he comes out with. 
he says that from now on he's going to be content he's going to be content with all sorts of negative situations I'm content when I lose I'm content when I am weak I'm content with insults I'm content when I'm slandered I am content in distress I'm content with persecutions I'm content with difficulties and pressures that are so tight I can hardly turn around why because when I am I am weak then I am strong those words gave Paul a man of a man of grace true grit and courage those words enabled Paul to get through those weak and difficult times and they do the same for you if you turn to those those words if you remember what God said to Paul would you know what Paul records it in God's word because it's not just a message for him it is a message for everyone who takes Jesus as their saviour and commits to following him my grace is sufficient for you you can put your name at the end of that sentence to personalise it because it is a personal message from God to his people You see, sometimes that can be difficult to allow ourselves. We don't like showing weakness, do we? To allow ourselves to become weak is not, is not an easy thing. In a world, in a country that tells us that we should be strong, that weakness is, is, is not a good thing. So how does this work? Well, the best example I've heard of someone allowing God to be powerful by becoming weak is a friend of mine who um, a loved one was in hospital and um, they were going downhill quite rapidly. The news was getting worse and worse and worse. And this, this friend of mine had been a Christian for many, many years and he said, you know what, I, I found myself in a situation where I would go into hospital and I would hold the hand of my, my, my loved one and I would just pray in my head silently. And no one knew what I was doing and I kept my eyes open and they would have just thought I was just sitting there gazing out the window or gazing at my loved one but I was praying you see I feel very self-conscious when I pray I feel a bit silly praying out loud if I'm honest so I didn't and then the news got worse and so when I went in I began whispering very quietly when I prayed and then the news got worse and so I began closing my eyes and really praying in earnest and then eventually it got to the point where the doctor said we've we've done all we can and he said at that point I suddenly stopped feeling self-conscious I suddenly stopped feeling silly praying I suddenly found myself on my knees crying out loud to God saying Lord please 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 act in this situation heal this person father please don't let them be in pain don't let them suffer anymore heal them or take them or just lord please don't let this situation go on and he said i was praying and praying and praying and i got to the end of my prayer and i said amen and a chorus of voices from around the ward responded echoing amen and i looked up and there were people looking at me and i didn't feel self-conscious now my friends 
relative died shortly after that. The suffering came to an end. The prayer was answered, maybe not in the way that he wanted, but the prayer was answered. But the reason I'm telling you this is because he then started to have conversations with other people on the ward who had heard him praying. They asked him to pray for them. He found himself praying for their friends and family members who who came in to see um, their loved ones because their loved ones had told him about this man who had prayed a powerful prayer. And he found that after his own um, relative had, had passed away, he kept in touch with some of those people. Some of them were Christians, others of them weren't. They were just touched by this demonstration of faith. You see, he was at his absolute weakest point. His pride had been stripped away. His self-consciousness had had evaporated because he was desperate. He was calling out to God. He was in absolute weakness. And through that, the strength of God moved. The strength of God grew stronger and stronger and stronger. And relationships and opportunities to share faith and to encourage others and to pray for other people were given. By the strength of God. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Maybe another example of God's power being made perfect in weakness can be found in some of the news reports recently. Now, um, I'm sure this is happening in, in some churches in the UK as well. I haven't heard of any, but I'm, I'm sure it would be. Um, but I've seen several news reports from America where there are some churches, and it's only a very small number of churches, who are telling their congregations not to fear coronavirus because we're Christians. We've been washed by the blood of Christ. Coronavirus cannot harm us. And you think, oh, no, no. That is not the right message to send out. We've been spiritually cleansed by the blood of Christ, yes, but we are still physically vulnerable to disease, to suffering. We know that. Christians don't live forever. They do in heaven, but on this earth, we are physically vulnerable. And so, I just want to say this morning, we've got to remember, and I wish that those churches would remember as well, that that. Jesus washed us clean of our sin, but he didn't wash us clean of our common sense. When we acknowledge that we are vulnerable, then suddenly in our weakness, God is made stronger. He's made stronger to save lives because we're listening to the advice of of the NHS to stay at home. He's, He's made stronger to save lives because... Companies are stepping up and making um, personal protective equipment rather than their usual products. He's made stronger in our weakness because suddenly we're being sensible in our shopping habits and, and making sure there's enough food for other people rather than selfishly trying to hoard it all for ourselves. You see, in our weakness, God is made strong. So... God doesn't exempt his people from disease or from doubt or from distraction or from inhibition or from some sort of of, feeling of spiritually losing our way from time to time. 
But instead, and this is the great thing about God, instead, he doesn't exempt us from it, but he joins us in our struggles and in our sufferings and in our hardships. He walks amongst us through his spirit, just as he did through the body of Jesus. He joins us, he equips us and he helps us. And so at this time, at this time, let's just remember Jesus's words to Peter. After they'd had the meal of fish on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias on that morning that we spoke about earlier in this sermon. After they'd had the fish and eaten together and there'd been an air of shock and awe as the disciples just looked at Jesus and tried to work out how it was that this man who was dead was now sitting before them, eating, breathing, talking. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Peter says, you know I do. Three times Jesus asks the same question, and three times Peter feels a bit more hurt and upset and come on Jesus you know you even have to ask me that you know I love you you know after everything I've given up for you I've done for you you know I love you and Jesus says feed my lambs feed my sheep and so too at this time God calls us God calls Christian folk to tend to his flock tend to his people. Now let's remember that God loves every single person on this earth and he wants a relationship with them. He wants to know them personally and for them to acknowledge him as their God. He wants them to acknowledge his son Jesus Christ as their saviour. And so when he says tend my sheep that is a responsibility that falls upon all of us to make sure that in our weakness we are making sure that God's power is is strengthened and made perfect to reach out to as many people as possible to make sure that we show love and kindness and generosity and humility and patience and goodness to all people that we meet all those people around us all those people that we are in one form or another coming into contact with in our daily lives. So if you're feeling a little bit flat, don't worry about it because God is with you and in your weakness, he is, his strength, his power is made perfect. So I hope that encourages you this week. I hope you can take those words and that you can go back to them and, and look at those scriptures and remember that we have a job to do, that we are clear, we are called to serve to serve God by serving others. So this week, let's make sure that we remember those words of scripture, that we go out into the world, that we make a difference, that we share our faith through through our acts, that we show our love and our kindness and all the good things, that we reflect Jesus and that day by day, we become more Christ-like as we seek to follow him and as we seek to lead others to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you that even in times when we are beginning to feel a little bit distant or a little bit empty or a little bit flat, that you are there with us, filling us with your Holy Spirit and using us in our weakness to glorify you. 
Father, thank you that that you are not a God that that demands that we stand up in our own strength and fight for you. But instead, you give us strength. You give us everything that we need, all the spiritual nutrition. So, Lord, we pray that we can go out this week from our own homes. We can we can celebrate you. We can share you that we can demonstrate the gifts that you have given us, that we can serve other people and love them as you love us. Father, thank you for Jesus, for all that he means to the world, for all that he means to each one of us. And Father, we pray that you will help to keep us safe, help us to do the right things, to act wisely, to protect ourselves and each other at this time. And Father, help us to be the best possible witness that we can be to you our God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Stay safe. Look after yourselves. Look after one another. And hopefully you'll join us again next week when Gary will be bringing the sermon. God bless.